Well, we've all, I assume, eaten something in the past 24 hours. And whenever we eat a meal, we are aware of the preparation that goes into that meal. The shopping has to be done, first of all. The groceries have to be brought home. They're unpacked. And then we begin preparing them, washing, perhaps, peeling, slicing, chopping. And then there's the careful cooking process, seasoning correctly, making sure things are at the right temperature, all of that sort of stuff. And then once the food's ready, well, we arrange it on the plate. And even if we don't arrange it carefully, maybe we just slap it down. There's still some sort of arrangement going on. We have to make sure there's clean cutlery. And so even the most basic meal requires preparation. Maybe, I don't know what you had for your tea tonight. Maybe it was just tea and toast. But even that requires us to do something to get the food ready. Maybe you're one of those very blessed people who has somebody else in your life that just sets the food in front of you. Even then, you've got to wash your hands, don't you? And you also, you've got to be in the right place at the right time for the meal to be set in front of you. So even if we're not the ones making the meal We still have to prepare in some way. Tonight, I want us to think through the preparation that is necessary for the meal that we will share on Sunday. As we come to the Lord's table, to the Lord's supper on Sunday, there's preparation that needs done. We need to prepare. And I'm not talking just about cutting the bread and pouring the wine. That needs done. And I'm not even just simply talking about being in the right place at the right time to be served with the meal. Of course, that needs done as well. But when we come to the Lord's Supper, there's another level, another element of preparation that's needed. We need to prepare our hearts, we need to prepare our minds. We are entering into a meal that we share with one another in the church. We come into communion, don't we? We come into fellowship with one another and with the Lord Almighty. The Bible talks about people sharing a meal very frequently. There's lots of references. It's often referred to as feasting. We've seen it as we've been looking through Ecclesiastes. There's been a number of occasions where the preacher has encouraged us that we should eat good food and drink good wine. It's clear that sharing a meal with friends is a good thing to do. Likewise, we could turn in our Bibles to the life of Jesus. And as we read about Jesus's life, there's many occasions where Jesus is sharing food with people where he is reclining at table. It was a major part of Jesus's earthly ministry that he would enter into people's houses and he would eat with them. One example, what about Zacchaeus? We don't know a huge amount about Zacchaeus, but what do we know? We know that he was a very little man. We know that he climbed a sycamore tree 
And we know that Jesus went to his house for tea. Jesus went to eat with Zacchaeus. And what was the result? Well, the result was that Zacchaeus was saved along with the rest of his household. And so the Bible gives us lots of examples where sharing a meal together is a very special occasion, a very special experience for those who are present. And one of the reasons for that is because when you eat together with other people, you develop connections. You develop connections over a meal. We know this to be true in our own experience. It's not just there in the Bible. We know it from our own lives. Maybe you can think of a time when you shared a meal with a group of people and it was special. Maybe you think of a wedding party, the elaborate table set up and wonderful food. Or maybe simply going to someone's garden for a barbecue. And maybe we don't remember all of the details of the food that was eaten, but we remember the connection. We remember the conversations we had. We remember the atmosphere. We remember how we felt. There is something special about sharing a meal with other people. And one of those things is the connections that we make. And so... It's not a coincidence, it's not mere chance that God has chosen eating a meal as the sacrament of the Christian church or a sacrament of the Christian church. This communal meal which is to be shared together is a meal in which we make connections. And so tonight as we think about preparing to take communion, I want to think through some of the connections we make in the Lord's Supper. Let's prepare our hearts and our minds by grasping what this meal is about. This meal is about connecting. As we prepare for communion, I want us to grasp that the Lord's Supper connects us. It connects us to history. It connects us to the church. And it connects us to heavenly realities. First of all, the Lord's Supper connects us to history. There's a number of ways we could think this through. We could think about the history of the people of this place. We could think about those who have taken communion in this very building, or maybe over in the building at Jarrett's Pass. Generations, perhaps, of your own family who have taken communion in the same pew that you now take communion in, maybe even using the same plates and the same cups. That's not quite what I want to drive at this evening. What I want to point out this evening is that we are connected to the history of the human race. We're connected to the history of all human beings when we share in this meal I want to read to you from Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 2, starting reading at verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord made every tree grow 
that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I don't know if you've ever noticed before in Genesis, there are two trees. Two trees which are mentioned and and set apart from the others. There's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We know about it. That's the tree that Adam and Eve are forbidden to eat from. But there's also another tree. There's the tree of life. And that's the tree that becomes the central focus. After the fall, Adam and Eve are barred from getting to the tree of life. Genesis chapter 3, all the way after the fall, verse 22. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. Now lest he put out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man And he placed a cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Two trees. Adam and Eve reached out and took from one tree and that barred them from getting to the other tree. It's well understood in Reformed theology that God made a covenant with Adam. This covenant had conditions. If Adam kept the conditions, then he would be blessed. But we know how the story went. We know that Adam failed to keep the covenant conditions, and so instead he was cursed. But we can infer from from the fact that Adam and Eve were barred from eating from the tree of life, that if they had kept the covenant conditions, then their reward would have been to eat from the tree of life. Adam and Eve were in what has been called probation or a, a, a testing time, a period of testing. And the reward, if they had passed the test, would have been eating. It would have been sharing a meal with God. The ultimate purpose of humanity then is to share in communion with God over a meal. I think this is a remarkable thing to realise. As we prepare to take communion on Sunday, we are preparing for the very thing that the Lord has promised to human beings from the beginning. The very thing that we were created for has been accomplished through Christ. And we can now share in that communion meal with God. We are connected to the history of the human race by sharing in communion. We're enacting fellowship with God 
in a communion meal. We know that Adam and Eve broke those covenant conditions. They were, they were barred from the tree of life. But God opened up a, a door for humanity with a new covenant. We call this the covenant of grace. This covenant is that, that God himself would hold up both sides. So that even if humanity failed to keep the covenant, God would prop us up. God would take on the punishment. If the covenant was broken, God would bear the punishment on both sides. This covenant is seen really clearly when God comes to speak to Abraham. We're not going to get into all the details of, of God's interactions with Abraham this evening, but it's really helpful to notice that when God comes to Abraham, very often there is a meal involved. Likewise, we can think of the children of Israel enslaved in Egypt. We know that God rescued them. How did the rescue begin? It began with a meal. It began with the Passover feast. This feast where, where God saved the firstborn child of his people, not on the basis of that child's behavior. The child could have been a delinquent. He saved the child on the basis of the family's faith. Did the family trust God that, that they would do what God said, that they would kill a lamb and paint the doorposts and the lintel with its blood? To use language which is really familiar to evangelicals today, the child was saved because of their faith in the blood of the lamb. So the idea of God saving his people is very often connected with a meal. Continues throughout the Old Testament. Think about the provision of manna in the wilderness. The continued celebration of Passover in the tabernacle and later in the temple. And then in the New Testament, Jesus eating with his disciples at the Last Supper and instituting this covenant meal, this sacramental meal, which has been celebrated for the last 2,000 years, all the way down to this coming Sunday. And so as we prepare our hearts and our heads to take communion on Sunday, I want us to grasp this meal connects us to history. It connects us to the history of God's people. God's people were always meant to share in a fellowship meal with God. It's been the case from the very beginning. This is not something that was invented by the church. We're not innovating this meal. We are connecting ourselves to history. Rooting ourselves in the fellowship and communion that God, the God of the universe, shares with his people. The Lord's Supper connects us to history.
Secondly, the Lord's Supper connects us to the church. Again, we could, I suppose, talk about the connection with the church down through history, and that's true. But I don't want to focus on that this evening. I want to focus instead on our connection with the worldwide church, usually referred to as the Catholic Church. And that word Catholic means universal. I'm aware in this part of the world it has different connotations. We conflate Catholic and Roman Catholic at times. I simply want to point out that all over the world there are God's people celebrating the sacrament of communion. And so by participating, we're connected. We're connected to those from all tribes and tongues and nations who have heard of Jesus and who have trusted in him by faith. I think it's really important. We are, culturally, we are so different from even other parts of the Western world. Think about the difference between us and somebody living in New York City. Massive cultural differences. What about the difference between us and someone living in a flavela in Brazil? What about the difference between us and somebody living in China? Massive differences. Some of the Southeast Asian countries, those living in sub-Saharan Africa. Massive, massive differences. We are so different in almost every way. And yet, through communion, we're connected. We're part of the same church. We're connected through the Lord's Supper. All over the world, people are hearing those same words of institution. Those words which we read earlier from 1 Corinthians. All over the world, people are being served and serving communion. People are eating bread and wine to celebrate, to remember the Lord's death until he comes. Something that's really helped me as I've tried to think about this for myself is to simply think about the nature of those things we use in the sacraments of the church. What do we need? What do we need to be a church? If we stripped everything else away, if we removed all the cultural trappings of music, the type of music that we use, the style of our worship, if we remove the, you know, the, the way we dress, which is very cultural. If we removed all the comforts of a, a roof over our heads and, and sitting in pews. What do we need if we stripped everything else away? Well, I think there's only four things that the people of God need to function as a New Testament church. We need the Bible. That probably goes without saying. I hope it goes without saying. That's why we work hard to translate the Bible into other languages and we pray for those who are engaged in that work. The other three things we need are found in nearly every other place on earth. Regardless of geography or culture, we need water for baptism. 
and we need bread and wine for communion. That's it. That's what we need. We need the Bible. We need water. We need bread and we need wine. It seems pretty obvious whenever we say it so simply, but the point is this. No matter what other Christians are like culturally, and no matter where they are in the world, we're connected. We're connected through the gospel, and that's demonstrated in the fact that we eat bread and we drink wine to celebrate and to remember the death of the Lord Jesus Christ until he comes. This is one of the reasons why I ask us in our congregations to hold our eating and our drinking until everyone's been served. We demonstrate our connection to one another in the room, but we also demonstrate our connection with everybody else in the world by eating and drinking together. We do it at the same time. So as we prepare for Sunday, I want you to grasp this. Take hold of it. The Lord's Supper connects us to the church, to all other Christians in the worldwide Catholic Church of Jesus Christ as we participate in the Lord's Supper. Well, finally then, we're connected to the heavenly realities. We have to grasp this. Participation in the Lord's Supper is doing something much more than simply eating and drinking. Much, much more. And you know this. The bread is not merely bread and the wine is not merely wine. They are what the catechism calls signs and seals of the covenant of grace. This is what the larger catechism says in question 163. The parts of the sacrament are two. The one, an outward and sensible sign used according to Christ's own appointment. And the other, an inward and spiritual grace thereby signified. So in one sense, it's just bread and wine. That's all it is. It's not special bread or special wine. But in another sense, we are connected to the heavenly realities of what those things signify through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. We're connected to Jesus himself when we participate in the Lord's Supper. Communion shows us that it is his death on our behalf and through his resurrection that we too are raised. That in Jesus we have the forgiveness of sins and we have everlasting life. In communion, We are connected to everything that is true of us because of our union with Christ by faith. So yes, we eat an earthly piece of bread and we drink an earthly cup of wine. But when we do so by faith, 
trusting in the body of Christ broken and the blood of Christ spilled, we are connected to the truth, to the heavenly realities that are true for us as God's chosen and special and treasured possession. Just as the firstborn son was rescued from death by the family's faith in the blood of the lamb, so too we are saved by faith, not by works. And we demonstrate that as we celebrate communion. I think this has been really, really nicely illustrated for us in our assurance of pardon over the last month, Isaiah 25. This picture, you know, our assurance of pardon, it's been a a picture of God preparing a meal for his people. God spreading out on the mountain a feast of the best meats and, and finest wines. All the choice things for God's people. And who prepares the meal? God prepares the meal. There is grace in this. We see the grace of God and the fact that the feast has been prepared and set before us. We've not had to do anything. We've not had to go out and hunt for the meat. We've not had to to stamp the grapes under our feet to get the wine. It's prepared for us as with salvation. We don't work for our salvation. It's prepared for us by Jesus through his life, his death and his resurrection. But the illustration of Isaiah 25 goes further. It describes a a covering over the people. And it's not something we can remove for ourselves. It's a covering that must be removed for us. A a veil, a, a shroud of death that covers all people. And Isaiah tells us something remarkable. He says this covering, this shroud is swallowed up by God himself. We will be eating the best meats, drinking the finest wines. What does God eat? God swallows death. God himself bearing the punishment and curse for us breaking the covenant. And so while it's a beautiful truth, the image is harsh. It's like the soldier who jumps on the bomb to save his friends from the blast. Jesus Christ himself swallowing death, taking it to himself as he went to the cross, taking our death upon himself and bearing it in his own body it is a stark image but isn't it beautiful so as we prepare for the lord's supper this coming sunday we must grasp the realities that the lord's supper connects us it connects us to the history of the human race what we've been created for It connects us to the church, the worldwide church you share in this sacrament. And it connects us to what is true of us because of Jesus.
This could be summed up very simply, I think, by saying this. The Lord's Supper connects us to the Lord of the Supper, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is the one that our preparation should be focused upon, on who he is and what he has done. Let me pray for us.